This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Principles, Life and Work, written by Ray Dalio in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 5. Learn to Make Decisions Effectively As a professional decision maker, I have spent my life studying how to make decisions effectively and have constantly looked for rules and systems that will improve my odds of being right and ending up with more of whatever it is that I'm after. One of the most important things I've come to understand is that most of the processes that go into everyday decision making are subconscious and more complex than is widely understood. For example, think about how you choose and maintain a safe distance behind the car in front of you when you are driving. Now, describe the process in enough detail that someone who has never driven a car before can do it as well as you can or so that it can be programmed into the computer that controls an autonomous car. I bet you can't. Now, think of the challenge of making all your decisions, well, in a systematic, repeatable way, and then being able to describe the process so clearly and precisely that anyone else can make the same quality decisions under the same circumstances. That is what I aspire to do, and have found to be invaluable, even when highly imperfect. While there is no one best way to make decisions, there are some universal good rules for good decision making. They start with 5.1. Recognize that one, the biggest threat to good decision making is harmful emotions. And two, decision making is a two step process learning and then deciding. Learning must come before deciding. As explained in chapter one, your brain stores different types of learning in your subconscious, your rote memory banks, and your habits. But no matter how you acquire your knowledge or where you store it, what's most important is that what you know paints a true and rich picture of the realities that will affect your decision. That's why it always pays to be radically open-minded and seek out believable others as you do your learning. Many people have emotional trouble doing this and block the learning that could help them make better decisions. Remind yourself that it's never harmful to at least hear an opposing point of view. Deciding is the process of choosing which knowledge should be drawn upon. Both the facts of this particular what is and your broader understanding of the cause-effect machinery that underlies it and then weighing them to determine a course of action and what to do about it. This involves playing different scenarios through time to visualize how to get an outcome consistent with what you want. To do this well, you need to weigh first-order consequences against second- and third-order consequences and base your decisions not just on near-term results, but on results over time. Failing to consider second- and third-order consequences is the cause of a lot of painfully bad decisions, and it is especially deadly when the first inferior option confirms your own biases. Never seize on the first available option, no matter how good it seems, before you've asked questions and explored. To prevent myself from falling into this trap, I used to literally ask myself questions. Am I learning? Have I learned enough yet that it's time for deciding? After a while, you will just naturally and open-mindedly gather all the relevant info, but in doing so, you will have avoided the first pitfall of bad decision-making, which is to subconsciously make the decision first and then cherry-pick the data that supports it. But how does one learn well? Learning well. For me, getting an accurate picture of reality ultimately comes down to two things, being able to synthesize accurately and knowing how to navigate levels. Synthesis is the process of converting a lot of data into an accurate picture. 
The quality of your synthesis will determine the quality of your decision making. This is why it always pays to triangulate your views with people who know you synthesize well. This raises your chance of having a good synthesis even if you feel like you've already done it yourself. No sensible person should reject a believable person's views without great fear of being wrong. To synthesize well, you must 1. Synthesize the situation at hand, 2. Synthesize the situation through time, and 3. Navigate levels effectively. 5.2. Synthesize the situation at hand. Every day you are faced with an infinite number of things that come at you. Let's call them dots. To be effective, you need to be able to tell which dots are important and which dots are not. Some people go through life collecting all kinds of observations and opinions like pocket lint instead of just keeping what they need. They have detail anxiety, worrying about unimportant things. Sometimes small things can be important. For example, that little rattle in your car's engine could just be a loose piece of plastic or it could be a sign that your timing belt is about to snap. The key is having a higher level perspective to make fast and accurate judgments on what the real risks are without getting bogged down in details. Remember, A. One of the most important decisions you can make is who you ask questions of. Make sure they are fully informed and believable. Find out who is responsible for whatever you are seeking to understand and then ask them. Listening to uninformed people is worse than having no answers at all. B. Don't believe everything you hear. Opinions are a dime a dozen, and nearly everyone will share theirs with you. Many will state them as if they are facts. Don't mistake opinions for facts. C. Everything looks bigger up close. In all aspects of life, what's happening today seems like a much bigger deal than it will appear in retrospect. That's why it helps to step back to gain perspective and sometimes defer a decision until some time passes. D. New is overvalued relative to great. For example, when choosing which movie to watch or what book to read, are you drawn to proven classics or the newest big thing? In my opinion, it is smarter to choose the great over the new. E. Don't over-squeeze dots. A dot is just one piece of data from one moment in time. Keep that in perspective as you synthesize. Just as you need to sort big from small and what's happening in the moment from overall patterns, you need to know how much learning you can get out of any one dot without overweighing it. 5.3. Synthesize the situation through time. To see how dots connect through time, you must collect, analyze, and sort different types of information, which isn't easy. For example, let's imagine a day in which eight outcomes occur. Some are good and some are bad. Now, let's illustrate this day with each type of event represented by a letter and the quality of that letter represented by its height. In order to see the day this way, you must categorize outcomes by type, signified by letters, and quality, the higher up the graph, the better, which will require synthesizing a, by and large, assessment of each. To make an example more concrete, imagine you're running an ice cream shop and the W's represent sales, the X's represent customer experience ratings, and the Y's represent press and reviews, and the Z's represent staff engagement. Keep in mind that our example is a relatively simple one, just eight occurrences over a day. Now, if it was a great day for sales, because the W's would be at the top, and a bad day for customer experience, with the X's at the bottom, you might conjecture why. It may be a crowd-generated sales but produced large lines.
Now, and we see a graphic of what a month of work days looks like on a scale of good to bad on the y-axis and time on the x-axis. The next chart plots just the type x dots, which we can see are improving over time. People who are good at pulling out such patterns of events are rare and essential, but as with most abilities, synthesizing through time is only partially innate. Even if you're not good at it, you can get better through practice. You'll increase your chances of succeeding at it if you follow the next principle. A. Keep in mind both the rates of change in the levels of things and the relationships between them. When determining an acceptable rate of improvement for something, is it is its level in relation to the rate of change that matters. I often see people lose sight of this. They say it's getting better without noticing how far below the bar it is and whether the rate of change will get it above the bar in an acceptable amount of time. If someone who has been getting grades of 30s and 40s on their tests raises their scores to 50s over the course of a few months, it would be accurate to say that they are getting better, but they would still be woefully inadequate. Everything important in your life needs to be on a trajectory to be above the bar and headed toward excellence at an appropriate pace. The lines in the chart show how the dots connect through time. A's trajectory gets you above the bar in an appropriate amount of time, but B does not. Both accelerate, though. To make good decisions, you need to understand the reality of which of these two cases is happening. B. Be imprecise. Understand the concept of by and large and use approximations. Because our educational system is hung up on precision, the art of being good at approximations is insufficiently valued. This impedes conceptual thinking. For example, when asked to multiply 13 by 12, most people do it the slow and hard way. Rather than simply rounding 38 up to 40, rounding 12 down to 10, and quickly determining that the answer is about 400. Look at the ice cream shop example and imagine the value of quickly seeing the approximate relationships between the dots versus taking time to see all the edges precisely. It would be silly to spend time doing that, yet that's exactly what most people do. By and large is the level at which you need to understand most things in order to make effective decisions. Whenever a big-picture, by-and-large statement is made and someone replies, not always, my instinctual reaction is that we are probably about to dive into the weeds, i.e., a discussion of the exceptions rather than the rule, and in the process, we may lose sight of the rule. To help people out at Bridgewater avoid this time waster, one of our just-out-of-college associates coined a saying that I often repeat, quote, when you ask someone whether something is true, and they tell you that it's not totally true, it's probably, by and large, true. End quote. C. Remember the 80-20 rule and know what the key 20% is. The 80-20 rule states that you get 80% of the value out of something like 20% of the information or effort. It's also true that you're likely to exert 80% of your effort getting the final 20% of value. Understanding this rule saves you from getting bogged down in unnecessary detail once you've gotten most of the learning you need to make a good decision. D. Be an imperfectionist. Perfectionists spend too much time on little differences at the margins at the expense of the important things. There are typically just five to ten important factors to consider when making a decision. It is important to understand these really well, though the marginal gains of studying, even the important things past a certain point of time, are limited. 5.4. 
navigate levels effectively. Reality exists at different levels and each of them gives you different but valuable perspectives. It's important to keep all of them in mind as you synthesize and make decisions and know how to navigate between them. Let's say you're looking at your hometown on Google Maps. Zoom in close enough to see the buildings and you won't be able to see the region surrounding your town, which can tell you important things. Maybe your town sits next to a body of water. Zoom in too close and you won't be able to tell if the shoreline is along the river, a lake, or an ocean. You need to know which level is appropriate to your decision. We are constantly seeing things at different levels and navigating between them, whether we know it or not, whether we do it well or not, and whether our objects are physical things, ideas, or goals. For example, you can navigate levels to move from your values to what you do to realize them on a day-to-day -day basis. This is what that looks like in an outline. 1. The high-level big picture. I want meaningful work that's full of learning. 1.1. Subordinate concept. I want to be a doctor. Subpoint. I need to go to medical school. Sub-subpoint. I need to get good grades in the sciences. And sub-sub-subpoint. I need to stay home tonight and study. All leading back up to the high-level picture that I want meaningful work that is full of learning. To observe how well you do this in your own life, pay attention to your conversations. We tend to move between levels when we talk. A. Use the terms above the line and below the line to establish which level a conversation is on. An above-the-line conversation addresses the main points and a below-the-line conversation focuses on the sub-points. When a line of reasoning is jumbled and confusing, it's often because the speaker has gotten caught up in the below-the-line details without connecting them back to the major points. An above-the-line discourse should progress in an orderly and accurate way to its conclusion, only going below the line when it's necessary to illustrate something about one of the major points. B. Remember that decisions need to be made at the appropriate level, but they should also be consistent across levels. For instance, if you want to have a healthy life, you shouldn't have 12 sausage links and a beer every day for breakfast. In other words, you need to constantly connect and reconcile the data you're gathering at different levels in order to draw a complete picture of what's going on. Like synthesizing in general, some people are naturally better at this than others, but anyone can learn to do this to one degree or another. To do it well, it's necessary to remember 1. Remember that multiple levels exist for all subjects. 2. Be aware on what level you're examining a given subject. 3. Consciously navigate levels rather than see subjects as undifferentiated piles of facts that can be browsed randomly. 4. Diagram, diagram the flow of your thought processes using the outline template. When you do all this with radical open-mindedness, you will become more aware not just of what you're seeing, but what you're not seeing, and what others, perhaps, are. It's a little like when jazz musicians jam. Knowing what level you're on allows everyone to play in the same key. When you know your own way of seeing and are open to others' ways as well, you can create good conceptual jazz together rather than just screech at each other. Now, let's go up a level and examine deciding. Decide well. Using decision-making logic to produce the best long-term outcomes has become its own science, one that employs probabilities and statistics, game theory, and other tools. While many of these tools are helpful, the fundamentals of effective decision-making are relatively simple and timeless. 
In fact, they are genetically encoded into our brains to varying degrees. Watch animals in the wild and you'll see that they instinctively make expected value calculations to optimize the energy they expend on food. Those that did this well prospered and passed on their genes through the process of natural selection. Those that did it poorly perished. While most humans who do this badly won't perish, they will certainly be penalized by the process of economic selection. As previously explained, there are two broad approaches to decision-making, evidence or logic-based, which comes from the higher-level brain, and subconscious emotion-based, which comes from the lower-level animal brain. 5.5. Logic, reason, and common sense are your best tools for synthesizing reality and understanding what to do about it. Be wary of relying on anything else. Unfortunately, numerous tests by psychologists show that the majority of people follow the lower-level path most of the time, which leads to inferior decisions without their realizing it. As Carl Jung put it, quote, Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate, end quote. It's even more important that decision-making be evidence-based and logical when groups of people are working together. If it's not, the process will inevitably be dominated by the most powerful rather than the most insightful participants, which is not only unfair but suboptimal. Successful organizations have cultures in which evidence-based decision-making is the norm rather than the exception. 5.6. Make your decisions as expected value calculations. Think of every decision as a bet with a probability and a reward for being right and a probability and a penalty for being wrong. Normally, a winning decision is one with a positive expected value, meaning that the reward times its probability of occurring is greater than the penalty times its probability of occurring, with the best decision being the one with the highest expected value. Let's say the reward for being right is $100 and the probability is 60% while the penalty for being wrong is also $100. If you multiply the reward by the probability of being right, you get $60, and if you multiply the penalty of the probability of being wrong, 40%, you get $40. If you subtract the penalty from the reward, the difference is the expected value, which in this case is positive, plus $20. Once you understand expected value, you also understand that it's not always best to bet on what is most probable. For example, suppose something has a only a 1 in 5 chance to succeed. Of succeeding will return you 10 times, like $1,000, the amount that it will cost you if it fails, $100. Its expected value is positive $120, so it's probably a smart decision even though the odds are against you, as long as you can also cover the loss. Play these probabilities over and over again and they will surely give you winning results over time. Though we mostly don't carry out these calculations explicitly, we constantly make them intuitively. For example, when you decide to take an umbrella to the store even though there's just a 40% chance of rain, or you check your phone to confirm the directions somewhere, even though you're almost certain you know the way, you're making expected value calculations. Sometimes, it's smart to take a chance even when the odds are overwhelmingly against you if the cost of being wrong is negligible relative to the reward that comes with the slim chance of being right. As the saying goes, it never hurts to ask. This principle made a big difference in my own life. Years ago, when I was just starting my family, I saw a house that was perfect for us in every way. 
The problem was that it wasn't on the market, and everyone I asked told me the owner wasn't interested in selling. To make matters worse, I was pretty sure I would be turned down for an adequate mortgage. But I figured that it wouldn't cost me anything to call the owner to see if we could work something out. As it turned out, not only was he willing to sell, he was willing to finance it and give me a loan. The same principle applies when the downside is terrible. For example, even if the probability of your having cancer is low, it might pay to get yourself tested when you have a symptom, just to make sure. To help you make expected value calculations well, remember that A. Raising the probability of being right is valuable, no matter what your probability of being right already is. I often observe people making decisions if their odds of being right are greater than 50%. What they fail to see is how much better off they'd be if they raised their chances even more. And you can almost always improve your chances of being right by doing things that will give you more information. The expected value gain from raising the probability of being right from 51 to 85%, i.e. by 34 percentage points, is 17 times more than raising the odds of being right from 49 to 51%, which is probably wrong, to 51, which is only a little more likely to be right. Hmm. Think of the probability as a measure of how often you're likely to be wrong. Raising the probability of being right by 34 percentage points means that a third of your bets will switch from losses to wins. That's why it pays to stress test your thinking, even when you're pretty sure you're right. B. Knowing when not to make a bet is as important as knowing what bets are probably worth making. You can significantly improve your track record if you only make the bets that you are most confident will pay off. C. The best choices are the ones that have more pros than cons, not those that don't have any cons at all. Watch out for people who argue against something whenever they can find something, anything wrong with it, without properly weighing all the pluses and minuses. Such people tend to be poor decision makers. 5.7. Prioritize by weighing the values of additional information against the cost of not deciding. Some decisions are best made after acquiring more information. Some are best made immediately. Just as you need to constantly sort the big from the small when you are synthesizing what's going on, you need to constantly evaluate the marginal benefit of gathering more information against the marginal cost of waiting to decide. People who prioritize well understand the following. A. All of your must-dos must be above the bar before you do your like-to-dos. Separate the musts from your like-tos and don't mistakenly slip any like-tos onto the first list. B. Chances are you won't have time to deal with the unimportant things, which is better than not having time to deal with the important things. I often hear people say, wouldn't it be good to do this or that? It's likely that they are being distracted from far more important things that need to be done well. C. Don't mistake possibilities for probabilities. Anything is possible, but it's the probabilities that matter. Everything must be weighed in terms of its likelihood and prioritized. People who can accurately sort probabilities from possibilities are generally strong at practical thinking. They're the opposite of the philosopher types who tend to get lost in clouds of possibilities. Shortcuts for becoming a great decision maker. 
Great decision makers don't remember all of these steps in a rote way and carry them out mechanically, yet they do follow them. That's because through time and experience, they've learned to do most of them reflexively, just as a baseball player catches a fly ball without thinking about how he's going to do it. If they had to call each of the principles up from their memory and then run them through their slow conscious mind, they couldn't possibly handle all the things that are coming at them well. But there are a couple things that they do carry out consciously, and you should do them too. 5.8. Simplify. Get rid of irrelevant details so that the essential things in the relationships between them stand out. As the saying goes, any damn fool can make it complex. It takes a genius to make it simple. Think about Picasso. He could paint beautiful representational paintings from an early age, but he continually pared down and simplified as his career progressed. Not everyone has a mind that works that way, but just because you can't do something naturally doesn't mean you can't do it. You just have to have creativity and determination. And if necessary, you can seek the help of others. 5.9. Use principles. Using principles is a way of both simplifying and improving your decision making. While it might seem obvious to you by now, it's worth repeating that realizing that almost all cases in hand are just another one of those. Identifying which one of those it is and then applying well thought out principles for dealing with it will allow you to massively reduce the number of decisions you have to make. I estimate by a factor of something like 100,000. And this will lead you to make much better ones. The key to doing this well is... 1. Slow down your thinking so you can note the criteria you are using to make your decision. 2. Write down the criteria as a principle. 3. Think about those criteria when you have an outcome to assess and refine them before the next one of those comes along. Identifying which one of those each thing is is likely identifying what species an animal is. Doing that for each thing and then matching it up with the appropriate principles will become like playing a game so it will be fun as well as helpful. Of course, it can also be challenging. Many cases at hand, as I call them, are hybrids. When a case at hand contains a few, another one of those, situations, one must weigh different principles against each other, using mental maps of how the different types of things I encounter should be handled. To help people do that, I created a tool I called a coach, which is explained in the appendix. You can use your own principles, or you can use those of others, You just want to use the best ones possible well. If you think that way constantly, you will become an excellent, principled thinker. 5.10. Believability weight your decision-making. I have found triangulating with highly believable people who are willing to have thoughtful disagreements has never failed to embrace my learning and sharpen the quality of my decision-making. It typically leads me to make better better decisions than I could have otherwise, and it typically provides me with thrilling learning. I urge you to do it. To do it well, be sure to avoid the common perils of 1. Valuing your own believability more than is logical, and 2. Not distinguishing between who is more or less credible. In case of disagreement with others, start by seeing if you can agree on the principles that should be used to make that decision. This discussion should include exploring the merits of the reasoning behind the different principles. If you agree on them, apply them to the case at hand and you'll arrive at a conclusion everyone agrees upon. If you disagree on the principles, try to work through the disagreement based on your respective believabilities. I will explain how we do this in more detail in Work Principles. 
This sort of principled and believability-weighted decision-making is fascinating and leads to much different and much better decision-making than is typical. For example, imagine if we used this approach to choose the president. It would be fascinating to see which principles we would come up with for both determining what makes a good president as well as for deciding who is most believable in making such determinations. Would we wind up with something like one person, one vote or something different? And if different, and in what ways? It certainly would lead to very different outcomes. During the next election, let's do this in parallel with our ordinary electoral process so we can see the difference. While believability-weighted decision-making can sound complicated, chances are you do it all the time, pretty much whenever you ask yourself, who should I listen to? But it's almost certainly true that you'd do it a lot better if you gave more thought to it. 5.11. Convert your principles into algorithms and have the computer make decisions alongside you. If you can do that, you will take the power of your decision-making to a whole other level. In many cases, you will be able to test how that principle would have worked in the past or in various situations that will help you refine it. And in all cases, it will allow you to compound your understanding to a degree that would otherwise be impossible. It will also take emotion out of the equation. Algorithms work just like words in describing what you would like to have done, but they are written in a language that the computer can understand. If you don't know how to speak this language, you should either learn it or have someone close to you who can translate for you. Your children and their peers must learn to speak this language because it will soon be as important or more important than any other language. By developing a partnership with your computer alter ego in which you teach each other and each do what you do best, you will be much more powerful than if you went about your decision-making alone. The computer will also be your link to great collective decision-making, which is far more powerful than individual decision-making, and will almost certainly advance the evolution of our species. Systemized and Computerized Decision-Making In the future, artificial intelligence will have a profound impact on how we make decisions in every aspect of our lives, especially when combined with a new era of radical transparency about people that's already upon us. Right now, whether you like it or not, it is easy for anyone to access your digital data to learn a tremendous amount about what you're like. And this data can be fed into computers that do everything from predict what you're likely to buy to what you value in life. While this sounds scary to many people, at Bridgewater we have been combining radical transparency with algorithmic decision-making for more than 30 years and have found that it produces remarkable results. In fact, I believe that it won't be long before this kind of computerized decision-making guides us nearly as much as our brains do now. The concept of artificial intelligence is not new. Even back in the 1970s, when I first started experimenting with computerized decision-making, it had already been around for nearly 20 years. The term artificial intelligence was first introduced in 1956 at a conference at Dartmouth College. While a lot has changed since then, the basic concepts remain the same. To give you just one ultra-simple example of how computerized decision-making works, let's say you have two principles for heating your home. You want to turn the heat on when the temperature falls below 68, and you want to turn the heat off between midnight and 5 a.m. You can express the relationship between these criteria in a simple decision-making formula. If the temperature is less than 68 degrees, and the time is not between 5 a.m. and midnight, then turn on the heat. By gathering many such formulas, it's possible to create a decision-making system that takes in data, applies and weighs the relevant criteria, and recommends a decision.
Specifying our investment decision-making criteria in algorithms and running historical data through them, or specifying our work principles in algorithms and using them to aid in management decision-making, are just bigger and more complicated versions of that smart thermostat. They allow us to make more informed and less emotional decisions much faster than we might do on our own. I believe that people will increasingly do this and that computer coding will become as essential as writing. In time, we will use machine assistance as much for decision-making as we do for information gathering today. As these machines help us, they will learn about what we are like, what we value, what our strengths and weaknesses are, and they will be able to tailor the advice they give us by automatically seeking out the help of others who are strong where we are weak. It won't be long before our machine assistants are speaking to others as machine assistants and collaborating in this way. In fact, that's beginning to happen already. Imagine a world in which you can use technology to connect to a system in which you can input the issue you're dealing with and have exchanges about what you should do and why with the highest rated thinkers in the world. We will soon be able to do this. Before too long, you will be able to tap the highest quality thinking on nearly every issue you face and get the guidance of a computerized system that weighs different points of view. For example, you will be able to ask what lifestyle or career you should choose given what you're like or how to best interact with specific people based on what they are like. These innovations will help people get out of their own heads and unlock an incredibly powerful form of collective thinking. We are doing this now and have found it way better than traditional thinking. While this kind of view often leads to talk of artificial intelligence competing with human intelligence, in my opinion, human and artificial intelligence are far more likely to work together because that will produce the best results. It will be decades and maybe never before the computer can replicate many of the things that the brain can do in terms of imagination, synthesis, and creativity. That's because the brain comes genetically programmed with millions of years of abilities honed through evolution. The science of decision-making that underlies many computer systems remains much less valuable than the art. People still make the most important decisions better than computers do. To see this, you need to look no further than the, at the kinds of people who are uniquely successful. Software developers, mathematicians, and game theory modelers aren't running away with all the rewards. It is the people who have the most common sense, imagination, and determination. Only human intelligence can apply the interpretations that are required to provide computer models with appropriate input. For example, a computer can't tell you how to weigh the value of the time you spend with your loved ones against the time you spend at work, or the optimal mix of hours that will provide you with the best marginal utilities for each activity. Only you know what you value most, who you want to share your life with, what kind of environment you want to be in, and ultimately, how to make the best choices to bring those things about. What's more, so much of our thinking comes from the subconscious in ways we don't understand that thinking, we can fully model it, is unlikely as an animal that has never experienced abstract thinking attempting to define and replicate it. Yet, at the same time, the brain cannot compete with the computer in many ways. Computers have much greater determination than any person, and they will work for you 24-7. They can process vastly more information, and they can do it much faster more reliably, and more objectively than you could ever hope to do. They can bring millions of possibilities that you never thought of to your attention. Perhaps most important of all, they are immune to the biases and consensus-driven thinking of crowds. They don't care if what they see is unpopular, and they never panic. 
during those terrible days after 9-11 when the whole country was being whipsawed by emotion, or the weeks between September and October 2008 when the Dow fell 3,600 points, there were times I felt like hugging our computers. They kept their cool no matter what. This combination of man and machine is wonderful. The process of man's mind working with technology is what elevates us. It's what has taken us from an economy where most people dig in the dirt to today's information age. It's for that reason that people who have common sense, imagination, and determination, who know what they value and what they want, and who also use computers, math, and game theory, are the best decision makers out there. At Bridgewater, we use our systems much as a driver uses a GPS in a car, not to substitute for our navigational abilities, but to supplement them. 5.12. Be cautious about trusting AI without having deep understanding. I worry about the dangers of AI in cases where users accept, or worse, act upon, the cause-effect relationships presumed in algorithms produced by machine learning without understanding them deeply. Before I explain why, I want to clarify my terms. Artificial intelligence and machine learning are words that are thrown around quite casually and often used as synonyms even though they are quite different. I categorize what is going on in the world of computer-aided decision-making under three broad types expert systems, mimicking, and data mining. These categories are mine and not the ones used in common in the technology world. Expert systems are what we use at Bridgewater, where designers specify criteria based on their logical understandings of a set of cause-effect relationships and then see how different scenarios would emerge under different circumstances. But Computers can also observe patterns and apply them in their decision-making without having any understanding of the logic behind them. I call such an approach mimicking. This can be effective when the same things happen reliably over and over again and are not subject to change, such as in a game bounded by hard and fast rules. But in the real world, things do change, so a system can easily fall out of sync with reality. The main thrust of machine learning in recent years has gone in the direction of data mining, in which powerful computers ingest massive amounts of data and look for patterns. While this approach is popular, it is risky in cases when the future may be different from the past. Investment systems built on machine learning that is not accompanied by deep understanding are dangerous because when some decision rule is widely believed, it becomes widely used, which affects the price. In other words, the value of a widely known insight disappears over time. Without deep understanding, you won't know if what happened in the past is genuinely of value. And even if it was, you will not be able to know whether or not its value has disappeared, or worse. It's common for some decision rules to become so popular that they push the price far enough that it becomes smarter to do the opposite. Remember that computers have no common sense. For example, a computer can easily misconstrue the fact that people wake up in the morning and then eat breakfast to indicate that waking up makes people hungry. I'd rather have fewer bets, ideally uncorrelated ones, in which I am highly confident than more bets in which I am less confident and would consider it intolerable if I could not argue the logic behind any of my decisions. A lot of people vest their blind faith in machine learning because they find it much easier than developing deep understanding. For me, that deep understanding is essential, especially for what I do. I don't mean to imply that these mimicking or data mining systems, as I call them, are useless. 
In fact, I believe that they can be extremely useful in making decisions in which the future range and configuration of events are the same as they have been in the past. Given enough computing power, all possible variables can be taken into consideration. For example, by analyzing data about the moves that great chess players have made under certain circumstances or the procedures great surgeons have used during certain types of operations, valuable programs can be created for chess playing or surgery. Back in 1997, the computer program program Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov, the world's highest ranked chess player, using just this approach. But this approach fails in cases where the future is different from the past and you don't know the cause-effect relationships well enough to recognize them all. Understanding these relationships as I do has saved me from making mistakes when others did, most obviously in the 2008 financial crisis. Nearly everyone else assumed that the future would be similar to the past. Focusing strictly on the logical cause-effect relationships was what allowed us to see what was really going on. When you get down to it, our brains are essentially computers that are programmed in certain ways, take in data, and spit out instructions. We can program the logic in both the computer that is our mind and the computer that is our tool so that they can work together and even double-check each other. Doing that is fabulous. For example, suppose we were trying to derive the universal laws that explain species change over time. Theoretically, with enough processing power and time, this should be possible. We would need to make sense of the formulas the computer produces, of course, to make sure that they are not data-mind gibberish, by which I mean based on correlations that are not causal in any way. We would do this by constantly simplifying these rules until their elegance is unmistakable. Of course, given our brain's limited capacity and processing speed, it could take us forever to achieve a rich understanding of all the variables that go into evolution. Is all the simplifying and understanding that we employ in our expert systems truly required? Maybe not. There is certainly a risk that changes not in the tested data might still occur. But one might argue that if our data mining-based formulas seem able to account for the evolution of all species through all time, then the risks of relying on them for just the next 10, 20, or 50 years is relatively low compared to the benefits of having a formula that appears to work but is not fully understandable, and that, at the very least, might prove useful in helping scientists cure genetic diseases. In fact, we may be too hung up on understanding— Conscious thinking is only one part of understanding. Maybe it's enough that we derive a formula for change and use it to anticipate what is yet to come. I myself find the excitement, lower risk, and educational value of achieving a deep understanding of cause-effect relationships much more appealing than a reliance on algorithms I don't understand, so I am drawn to that path. But is it my lower-level preferences and habits that are pulling me in this direction, or is it my logic and reason? I'm not sure. I look forward to probing the best minds in artificial intelligence on this and having them probe me. Most likely, our competitive natures will compel us to place bigger and bigger bets on relationships computers find that are beyond our understanding. Some of those bets will pay off, while others will backfire. I suspect that AI will lead to incredibly fast and remarkable advances, but I also fear that it could lead to our demise. We are headed for an exciting and perilous new world. That is our reality. And as always, I believe that we are much better off preparing to deal with it than just wishing that it were not true.